0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and
1: CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You know someone's made it in public life when all people need to hear is their initials and they know who you're talking about. I sat down yesterday with AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's upset grassroots victory for Congress in 2018 propelled her into the top ranks of progressive politics in America. We talked about her own improbable story and the state of the country and a fractious Democratic Party as President-elect Joe Biden gets set to take the helm. Here's our conversation. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, so good to be with you. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. um, And I don't want to Go through a whole list of uh, breaking news because you, do, you express yourself so well in so many different ways on these things. I just want to ask you about one thing that's happening uh, tonight, which is these negotiations over a relief bill, a stimulus uh, around COVID 19. And you've, you've expressed unhappiness on Twitter a couple of times uh, last night and today. What is the status of this now as we're churning toward the weekend?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think what we're seeing now in the current state of affairs is what's being negotiated and the current peg is that the good news is that we have extension of PPP. Um, bad news is we're looking at a second stimulus, quote-unquote stimulus uh, payment that is just $600. Um, what, what are we, eight, nine months after... Uh, passing a package that had twelve hundred dollars. We're looking at three hundred dollars in extension of unemployment benefits, down from the six hundred dollars that was initially authorized. And all of this, I think, is important to um, to acknowledge that these are the numbers that are happening when the cases are worse. These are the numbers that are happening when we have more deaths. And more cases per capita than we had when we passed the CARES Act that was more generous, but even then not sufficient.
1: Yeah. Are you 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 intimated last night that you might not vote for this? Will you vote for it? Do you think the way it's lining up?
0: Yeah, you know, I think we we're still waiting on final text and these negotiations, you know, they, they are changing by the hour. One hour we see that there will be stimulus payments, the next hour it's that those payments will be half as much as we thought they would be. Um, But if there is not a real stimulus payment and extension of unemployment benefits, I will not be supporting this bill.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, it strikes me that uh, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, we sit in the comfort of our offices our studies we moralize about what people's obligations are uh, in this crisis to keep to stay home to shut their businesses down and uh, so on and we don't have the burdens uh, of living from paycheck to paycheck and having to leave the home to earn money and losing that paycheck or investing everything you have in a small business and uh, seeing that small business uh, close down and so these I can see where there, there, there'd be real aggravation on the part of mm-hmm. people when they hear us tell them what their moral obligations are when we're not standing by them mm-hmm. um, here. Nonetheless, uh, they need this. Uh, what, what, you know, they need this. It does raise—you you talked last night about being tired of McConnell dictating the terms, um, and yet that's the world in which you live. That's the world you mm-hmm. chose, my friend— Yeah. Uh, And um, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate that? How do you decide um, when compromise is something that you have to accept because the absence of compromise would be worse?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think one of the reasons why the current state of affairs is so unacceptable is because, you know, for once, this is really Mitch McConnell. It's not just Mitch McConnell and the entire Republican Party. We've been able to peel off some Republicans um, to agree on a stimulus payment. You even have folks as far right as Josh Hawley saying that $600 is not enough. $700 is not enough. And so I do think that we kind of have a unique opportunity and window here because it's not just Mitch McConnell that we are kind of up against. It is really about the entire paradigm of austerity politics that we are up against. And that includes parts of the democratic party. It includes parts of the Republican party, but it does not include all of both. And so I do believe that there is a window for a different kind of bipartisan consensus. And as much as people bemoan populism, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that there is this kind of odd bedfellow situation where there are more populist elements in both parties that I do believe you can create bipartisan consensus around in economic help to people. And so, you know, I I do think that there's a window of opportunity here. And also because from what we're hearing, Donald Trump also wants generous stimulus payments. And so this really is kind of an austerity Republican driven block, but it doesn't have the support of the president. The current president does not have support entirety of the Republican Party. And so I do think that there's kind of an interesting alignment here uh, where we can push for more.
1: What does that portend for January if Democrats don't win the Senate in Georgia and S- Senator McConnell is still the majority leader? Because, you know, he, they, uh, they, he is a sort of seasonal deficit hawk. Um, mm-hmm. He gets very serious about this when Democrats are in charge and not so much when Republicans are in charge of the president's tax cut added one point seven trillion to deficits. I mean, are you concerned about the ability of Biden to pass a kind of fulsome economic program mm-hmm.
0: absolutely you know that is that is absolutely a concern of mine because if we only pass a package with six hundred dollars on a, a you know a six hundred dollar additional check and a very limited $300 unemployment protection with measly state and local assistance, you know, the actual things that are going to help people survive this crisis and we don't win uh, both seats in Georgia and Mitch McConnell remains the Senate majority leader. Um, I have very real doubts about any willingness or appetite that he would have to work with a biden administration to pass what would then be a third bill we know how much uh, amnesia there is in politics and once we're here a year from now i'm i believe that once the moment biden gets inaugurated i think we'll start hearing from republicans oh this is all in the past um People are reopening their businesses. I mean, they were denying how bad it was when we were in the full swing of it and are in the full swing of it. And so that is also, I think, adds to the urgency of trying to get as much as we can right now, because uh, unless we win in Georgia, a third bill is not promised. and, uh, And even if we're able to accomplish one, we don't know how generous it will be.
1: Let me turn to you. One of the things that, as I was preparing for this, I was wondering about was what what must it be like to be you, having been virtually unknown, uh, <laughs> f- uh, you know, less than four years ago, and really three years ago, I guess, mm-hmm. and and now you know, AOC is like you know, RBG, KFC. I mean, they are all <laughs> these. <laughs> it's uh, you know, and you are. You are a, like, globally known figure. You're reviled by Republicans who hold you up uh, as an emblem of the Democratic Party. You are you're a champion for uh, uh, people on the left. Um, but how do you process that when you wake up in the morning? Do you ever say, mm-hmm. geez, how the heck did this happen?
0: All the time. <laughs> All the time. You know, I think the initial, you know, what was so funny was— um, first of all, I never imagined the reaction to my winning a primary to be just as enormous um, as it was. And it it kind of took things to a level of just far beyond what we were trying to even accomplish, which was change our democratic representative uh, to a different one. Um, but it really, I think, just unleashed this very large wave of people who were just feeling very fed up with our current way of doing things um and even so you know the 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 closest thing that i could think of um when everything happened was um was looking at when eric Cantor was unseated uh years ago. And, you know, for folks who who may not recall, there was essentially this uh, very powerful Republican that was uh, seen to be a speaker in waiting and uh, was unseated by this upstart um, college professor, I believe, that no one really saw coming. And I figured, oh, okay, this is a similar situation to that. It'll be a new cycle for a week, maybe. And then That'll, you know, that'll be that. I'll be able to just kind of go back to my everyday life because <laughs> not many people know who their, who their, uh, you know, house representative is.
1: Not so much.
0: Yeah, not not as much. And so, you know, I I even with all the attention after the initial win, I didn't think that it was going to last. And I just tried to. I actually tried to push in that moment as much as possible, precisely because I thought it was so fleeting. And I thought it was really important for people to hear a message um, about, you know, a new Democratic Party that just fights tooth and nail for working class, a multiracial working class in the United States. Um, And it just didn't stop. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, okay, maybe it's just like a summer thing. And it really wasn't until, I don't know, maybe after I was sworn in, really. That I realized that, oh, this is like I got this is a your ta- life. Yeah. Like, oh, like this is like getting a tattoo on my face that I wasn't <laughs> planning to get.
1: <laughs> yeah. I remember when uh, my friend Barack Obama made his speech at the Democrat convention in Boston in 2004. You were, I think, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, um, and overnight, I mean, while you were in the hall, you could see the way people were reacting to him, a bit the way maybe they reacted to that video that you put out when you were a candidate. But mm-hmm. he touched something, and I said to Robert Gibbs, the press secretary, who was standing next to me, I said, "I think this guy's life just changed forever," and uh, mm-hmm. and in 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 fact, it did. Well, let's talk about about the your life. You you came from the Bronx. Tell me about your your folks, and um, and. Uh, your, your early years there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, my dad was, uh, born in the South Bronx when the Bronx was burning. Um, and my mom was born in Puerto Rico. Um, and when my dad was six years old, you know, all of these buildings crumbling to the ground in the South Bronx, um, my dad kind of looked around and that was the moment he decided that he wanted to be, one of the people that helped put the buildings back up and so he decided that he wanted to be an architect um and so you know from a very young age he's been very he was very kind of focused on pursuing this passion and um when, you know, he met my mom in Puerto Rico, both of my family, both of my parents' families are uh, from the island. And so he was home visiting family. He met my mom, um, in the neighborhood where, you know, his family on the island lived. And, um, and, you know, they, they got married relatively young and they moved back to the Bronx and that's where I was born a couple of years later. And, um, you know, very quickly, the realities of income inequality were just something that my family had to confront. Um, In the late 80s and early 90s, New York City public schools, particularly um, in the Bronx and other communities of color, were just, I mean, a completely different world than they even are today. And we're talking about high school dropout rates above 50%. um, And my mother was really afraid that I wasn't going to have like a a real chance at life. So my whole family basically saved up for us to um, buy this small home um, about 30 minutes north in a different school district.
1: In Westchester County, out of the city in uh, Yorktown Heights.
0: Yes, yes, in Yorktown Heights. and. you know, it, it was really interesting because my mom, you know, my dad was trying to start his own small business in the Bronx and, um, and he continued to do business in the Bronx. Um, my mom, you know, he, he was doing this on a really fledgling basis. And so my mom was really um, the breadwinner in our family for a while cleaning homes um, in Westchester County. And as a kid, I grew up, you know, being part of this economic service class. um, And I would read books on other people's staircases and do homework on other people's dinner tables while my mom uh, cleaned other people's homes. And, um, but, you know, we, every single weekend or all the time, you know, our life was still in the Bronx. My family was there. My father, my father's work was there. And so I constantly grew up um, between two worlds.
1: Yeah. How was that? Because you probably, there probably weren't too many uh, Puerto Rican students in your schools. I mean, did did you feel like you were living, toggling back between two worlds?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think in a lot of ways. Um, there's so many different worlds that uh, that I was toggling between there was the two worlds between home and school where i literally spoke different languages and different customs and um, and everything and then you know i you kind of get to school and i i went to school in the a predominantly very white, <laughs> um, school district. And, um, but it, it was also kind of this upwardly mobile class. It wasn't this old money. Mm-hmm. It was, it was like, you know, people who were second, third generation Italian or, or Irish, um, and really strong kind of, uh, middle-class Jewish communities as well. Um, but there was, almost no Latino or black representation, um, in the school. And so, you know, you, you navigate between these different worlds about, you know, speaking Spanish is being frowned upon. Um, and then there's the two worlds between Westchester County and the Bronx where, you know, my cousins, the realities that they encountered, um, in their public schools with metal detectors and, all of this um, were completely different. And then you had the two different realities of me growing up um, between New York and Puerto Rico, because during the summers, my parents couldn't afford childcare. And so I very often spent um, weeks or months on the island as well during the summertime. And so experiencing all of these very stark and dramatically different worlds all within the same country. And oftentimes within the same state, uh, I think was very formative to me, even though I didn't quite realize it yet as a child.
1: You were aware of the struggles that your cousins and friends and were were having in in, in, in their daily lives that you didn't have in the in the suburbs. Right.
0: And and I also knew that it was an injustice very early on. As well, you know, I had sensed that um, because I knew that my cousins, you know, in Puerto Rican and Latino culture, your cousins are essentially your siblings. You're raised very concurrently, very closely, and I knew that they were no better or worse than than I was, and yet they dealt with completely different circumstances. And so, you know, as you as a child, you know that that's not their fault, Um, and it really kind of forces everyone to question what is this water that we're swimming in why is this school district so much different than that one
1: we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files and now back to the show You were a great student. You were a, a science prodigy. Uh, <laughs> and you went to Boston University on scholarships to study biochemistry. And then you stopped and you were going to be, you were headed toward being a doctor and you went in an entirely diff- different direction. What happened?
0: I think, um, you know, it, it, and it is true, I was just obsessed with science as a child from a very early age. I just really enjoyed it. Um, and when I got to college, um, I think the things that started to move me more in a, in a public policy direction was that, you know, we, we invest so much in science um, to make sure that we learn more about our world and our universe and ostensibly use that to improve the human condition And uh, what I started to really kind of sit back and and look at was that the things that were making people sick, and especially communities like mine sick, were much more structural than they were problems of scientific knowledge. Um, We know how to heal people. Um, And of course there are always outstanding questions and we're always learning more, but even on a basic level, it's sometimes less, not that we don't have the medicine, but more that we don't give people medicine. And so I became, um, more interested in this, in the, um, in the realm of maternal health. And I was really interested in, um, in the developing world. And so I started, I first started kind of one foot in and one foot out in that I was studying public health policy and, um, and public health policy in, um, in kind of emerging economies. I spent time in, uh, I spent about four months living in West Africa, uh, kind of just observing midwives and maternal health out there and what we can learn on a policy perspective on how to improve, uh, women's lives and outcomes. Um, and then I think I just kind of dove in completely on the policy side, um, largely because I think I was impatient and I thought about, you know, what my life as a doctor, this
1: is an enduring <laughs> trait, huh?
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, you know, as a, as a doctor, um, I wanted to be an OBGYN and I just figured, man, you know, I don't know if I want to wait until, you know, my mid thirties in order to uh, start practicing medicine, um, in the way that I had wanted to. And so, you know, um, that was, I think that that was that in terms of me just fully pivoting to a more policy realm. I eventually majored uh, in both economics and international relations. And that was that.
1: Your dad passed away, uh, I guess, in your freshman year, or after your, right after your freshman year. And you've talked about that as being destabilizing mm-hmm. in, in many ways in your life. Uh, talk to me about that and how that impacted on you and your family.
0: Yeah, you know, you know, on a personal level, I was just extremely close with my father. Um, you know, I just think that the father-daughter bond is a very, very special and unique uh, formative relationship. And I absolutely was just very blessed to have that with my dad. Um, and so when he passed away, it was, you know, on a personal level, just an enormous um, absence of someone that helped me understand myself. Um, but you know, beyond that in the realm of my family, uh, my mom suddenly became a single mom. Um, we had tons of money in in medical debt, uh, that was out there, you know, um, and I was in college, you know, and I have a younger brother and, um, And he wanted to pursue the same opportunities to be able to get an education as well. And um, this was right before the financial crisis hit, right around that. Well, actually, it was was right during the financial crisis. Um, He actually passed away a month before Barack Obama, or two months before Barack Obama was elected president. So he saw, um, you know, President Obama win the primary. And I remember just having these conversations with him and, you know, him having so much guarded hope, thrilled that we were able to nominate him, but very deeply unsure if our country would elect him. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and he so he never got to see uh, Obama's presidency. He passed away shortly before then. But, you know, as we know, the markets were just crashing right around this time and um and in the years afterwards um the both both the crash and the response I think were just you know so many people never fully recovered and I think my family was absolutely uh one of those families and it was very deeply formative and it also was just such a I think it was a betrayal that a lot of families felt, which is that you followed the script. You did the promise. You, you, you know, you pursued everything right. You weren't quote unquote, irresponsible. You saved up, you started a business, you tried to pursue a family, et cetera. And the rug can still be taken out from you and no one will help. And, um, You know, I think it it was just such a, it's a story that just happened to so many millions of people Mm -hmm. and has continued to happen, whether it's a recession, whether it's a medical crisis or otherwise.
1: Yeah. You said your father was unsure whether the country would elect Barack Obama and didn't live to see it. He didn't live to see you get elected in this most improbable way. Uh, What would he have said? What would he have thought about that? You must have thought about that a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think my father had just a, he was famous for his sense of humor um, and just how cutting he was. So I think I kind of inherit that a little bit. (laughs) Um, But um, I think he just would have laughed. I think he would have thought it was just one of the funniest things in the world um, (laughs) because people like us you know and by like us i just mean very forward humorous uh brutally honest don't usually make it in politics <laughs> i i for, you know i myself had kind of um written myself off as as just n- that never being a possibility in my life
1: yeah.
0: um because i just yeah i i just felt that our our systems aren't meant <laughs> for that <laughs>
1: Although, and I think you know this because you're really such a student of the modern media environment, the ability to be utterly authentic, say what you think mm-hmm. uh, in this environment gets you down the field a long way because yeah. it's not what people, peop, it's what frustrates people about people in politics mm-hmm. is they get these sort of manicured speeches uh, and they and they never really get to the the core of what they're actually thinking and what's actually mm-hmm. going on. So actually being brash and funny and straightforward turns out to be a pretty good thing in politics yeah. in, in, the, in, in, in our era. So you went back to the Bronx and you, uh, you, you went to work for a program uh, at the National Hispanic Institute. You were mentoring and tutoring. Uh, you weren't really headed for a career in politics. What happened?
0: Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I think it's so funny because I talk a lot about cynicism and how we can combat it. And I think one of the reasons why I can speak to it so well is because I have succumbed to it in my past. You know, how I, I, the reason I had, you know, taken that path about working directly with families and children and school districts was because I felt that politics had not served our community and. Um, it was always communities like ours that are on the chopping block first and just our inherent identity makes us controversial to help. Um, Ergo, you know, when you want to seek bipartisan agreement, it's communities like mine that are the ones that are kind of left off. Um, And so I felt that if I really wanted to help, I wanted to work directly with my community. Um, I also felt that politics was a place for people with connections um, that you either came from money or you came from very strong pedigrees or you came, you know, you, or you just had to be acceptable to people with money and have a certain uh, pedigree in order to, um, to be, to be elected. Or, you know, in my case in local Bronx politics you had to be really deeply entrenched yeah. in these political machines, uh, which I had no interest in doing.
1: And Joe Crowley, who you ran against and who was really, as you, you sort of hinted earlier, was kind of on a path, everyone thought, to perhaps being Speaker of the House someday. This was a total confrontation between grassroots politics and clubhouse politics.
0: Yeah, it absolutely was. He, he was uh, he was actually chairman of the Queens Democratic Party. Yes. and at the time the queen's democratic party was far stronger it was seen as frankly the strongest party machine in all of new york city and um and that isn't a small thing because the smallest party uh, the strongest party machine in new york city very often determines the mayor it determines Mm -hmm. the city council speaker it determines and the and the power that that creates, goes all the way up to gubernatorial, other congressional seats. It was an enormously powerful seat of influence. Um, and I knew that if that was a path, you know, the promise that I had always made to myself was that I didn't want to s- sacrifice my soul, <laughs> who I am, um, in what I do. And, uh, and I felt you know, for a very long time taken for granted the fact that, you know, just felt like, okay, well, if you want to be in politics, you just have to kind of not be yourself. You have to not just compromise on a bill, but you have to compromise in your public presentation to the world. I mean, you have to keep some thoughts and beliefs private and other thoughts and beliefs can are allowed to be public. And I personally could not live that way, which is why I was not interested in that path. Um, But I also knew that if we wanted a change in our politics, we couldn't ascribe to this, you know, work your way up and become what you bemoan. Uh, But we had to actually confront the very structures of our current politics to begin with. And in New York city, corrupt machine politics, had to be confronted if we were going, if we had any prayer of a future for working class people.
1: You know, everybody remembers that 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 famous scene where you pulled up to your headquarters and pulled in and you saw on the television that you were projected to win. And there was a look I would have to describe as complete shock on your face. <laughs> um do was did did there come a point when you thought yeah we we could we're gonna win this thing we can win this thing or was it just at that moment that you realized holy smokes because you didn't win by a little you won by a lot
0: yeah as
1: as i sound like donald trump but you did win by a lot actually
0: (laughs) yeah no yeah i think it was i don't know 12 or 13 points um i always knew that winning was possible i never felt when I started, when I decided to run, I never felt that this was some kind of quixotic or, you know, how do you say it in English? I'm thinking Quixote in Spanish, but anyways. Yeah, no,
1: but quixotic um, is right. <laughs> yeah. And
0: I, I I, never believed that this was just some kind of principle for principled sake, quixotic endeavor. I knew that the odds were very deeply stacked against me. I knew that there was a probably 95% chance um, that, uh, that the incumbent would win. But I also knew that there was a 5% chance that I could win and that it was not zero and that if I worked, frankly, my ass off, that I could turn that 5% a little bit larger. Um, and so I always, I never felt that it was actually impossible. I always knew it was unlikely. Mm-hmm. But as long as I felt that it was possible – I was just laser focused on expanding the odds of that possibility and doing everything that I could. Now, was there ever a a point that I said, we're going to win this thing? It felt too forbidden to think. Mm -hmm. Um, It felt way too forbidden for me to ever even have the thought that I am going to win. That thought, Never happened. But I also never had the thought of I am going to lose either. You know, the Mm -hmm. mentality that I had was I am going to exploit every strategic avenue that I can and just lay it all out on the field until 9 p.m. on election night. Um, Mm -hmm. But there was one moment, you know, the day of where I woke up and I was canvassing all over the district doing one last pass. And I remember I was walking down um, a street in Jackson Heights and these people were in a car and they were driving past me and they just started honking and pumping their fists and I had never seen them, you know, I hadn't seen them, they weren't organizers. I hadn't personally knocked on their door. And that moment to me was really thrilling. And there was a part in my heart that I was like, maybe this could happen. But then I very quickly shoot it away and closed the door um, because it just felt way too entitled to even think that um, to even have that thought. Uh, And so, you know, I think that's what contributed to that shock because yeah. I, I didn't even let myself think or even fantasize about what would happen if we were successful.
1: When you got to Washington, you, you, you've said somewhere that you after six months, you weren't sure you wanted to run for reelection. Uh, tell me why.
0: Um, I think, you know, I, I think what, what had led to that moment and I, I genuinely was just so, um, unsure was because it was a lot, you know, um, I don't come from a family with money and even just that sheer transition, let alone just the insane media attention, um, was just, you know, it's just a lot, it's a completely different world. Um, and so you have to deal with just like, you know, some of the logistical stress you, when you get elected due to ethics rules, you're not allowed to get a paycheck after November, but then your first paycheck as a member of Congress is February 1st, the end of January. So you're navigating these material challenges, um, but also having this unprecedented media attention. I don't think people really understand how, how, how psychologically difficult it is, the weight that it had on my family and my friends, um, the the constant scrutiny, uh, what that does, it, it wasn't just, it's not just an ego thing. It materially changes the political dynamics in Congress. And, you know, by that point, that kind of sustained scrutiny had turned frankly, many members of my own party against me. Um, And it was very emotionally difficult. You know, it's very taxing emotionally as well, because um, it's one thing if you just walk in a store and a stranger kind of has an opinion of you based on what they saw in the news. Um, But it's really disheartening when your own party seems to abandon you over what they see on the news instead of the person that is materially in front of them
1: we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files and now back to the show First of all, you said uh, during the campaign, Democrats can be too big of a tent in any country. Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, but in America, we are. What party would you be in and what party would he be in? <laughs> and, um, and what does that say about where we are now?
0: Um, you know, I think I'd probably be in a Labor Party. Um, and uh, it's possible that um, that Biden and, and perhaps that wing of the party would be, uh, you know, depending on the country, but there's usually uh kind of a neoliberal like party a liberal
1: of, party in yeah. Britain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um
0: and so usually there's a party that's kind of a corporate consensus but like open to but not socially regressive. Um and that would probably be uh you know that that element of that party. Um and you know I, I actually think that it it's an interesting key in the polarization that we're seeing in American politics today. I think one of the reasons why there's polarization, um, you know, there's many, but one of the reasons is that people don't really know what their party in respective parties stand for because both parties need to build such broad political coalitions. Um, and so they project their own, Identities, biases, beliefs, etc., on one party writ large to represent people that are just not like them, and um, it creates a lot of challenges because you're not any discussion about intra-party disagreement of like just explodes into some s- super big controversy um, if you have a difference of opinion from your own party's leadership, whereas you know in other countries these coalitions are understood and they are named and that allows for that debate to happen. I think in a more healthy way.
1: Yeah. You also became, you know, Trump and the Republicans tried to use you and your three colleagues in the so-called squad, uh, all women of color uh, as an emblem of the ultra left, uh, what Mm -hmm. radical left is what he called it. And, um, and, uh, you you became sort of a negative icon in their ads um, as well. How does this cohere now? I know you had an uncomfortable discussion with your colleagues um, after the election because Democrats did poorly. I mean, Democrats mm-hmm. were supposed to add seats. Democrats lost 12 seats. Senate now is very much in, uh, up for, uh, you know, in doubt, I should say, for Democrats mm-hmm. um, and. The idea and the feeling was expressed by some of your colleagues that uh, you know words more than anything else, socialism, defund police, which mean one thing to you and your supporters, and you hear it in one way, mm-hmm. uh, can be weaponized in ways that it's heard differently by others in South mm-hmm. Florida, for exa- just as one example on on socialism, uh, defund police is heard as dismantling uh Mm -hmm. police what do you do about that to keep your not just your your coalition or your party together but to avoid being used in that way yeah by the other party
0: well you know i think it it raises so many different questions you know i always kind of laugh i can't help but laugh sometimes when i see the differences in republican and democratic strategy and Republicans, too, have very alienating portions of their base, to say the least. And what Republicans, Republicans aren't afraid of their base for better or for worse. Um, And they understand how to use and leverage their base in a very targeted and strategic way.
1: It's it's easier because it is a homogenous base. Mm -hmm. The. Democratic Party is a is a multiracial base and a multi multi-class and so mm-hmm. on.
0: But you know, even so, it's it's a it's homogenous perhaps in terms of race, but it's not but yeah, it's true. not homogenous in terms of class, gender, identity, um, etc. And and so anyways, what I what I say to that is that what happens is that when we run away from issues instead of actively defining ourselves, we create a vacuum where we allow Democrats create, uh, create a vacuum where we allow our opponents to define us because defund the police was not something that I campaigned on. It was not in my literature. I didn't go on TV talking about this yet. Many people, Democrats and Republicans alike, think that that is the case. Well, why is that? And that is because our party, I think, runs away from fights that are very winnable for us. Because I think what a lot of people don't realize is that it's not about whether we should have a national conversation on race or not. We're having a national conversation on race there's always a conversation about race happening in this country. When Republicans talk about caravans and when they talk about rioters, they are having a conversation about race. What is our conversation about race? And so I think that, you know, in terms of contribution, it should be defining what our message is. And that message should be concrete, not a kumbaya, let's come together. But it should be strong. And um, what we saw, I think, with Repub- – with, there, there were – you know, Democrats that did not get sunk by this messaging that were in precarious seats, and you know whether you an individual may like it or dislike it, um, there are examples of Democrats who took strong stances, whether they said, "I fully support our police," or "I have X view or Y view." Um, but even then, you know, I speak very closely with uh, with my New York colleague uh, Max Rose, who is arguably a member that got hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than anybody else on this conversation mm-hmm. about defund. And he's actually in agreement in that he thinks that if, um, that if the party responds by shirking away um, and shrinking even more, we're going to be in a lot of trouble.
1: Let me, let me just ask you two, a, a couple more things. I know I'm imposing on your Oh no. Here. It's
0: it's quite all right. It's quite all right.
1: <laughs> you you had a back and forth with some members uh, representative Spamberger, representative Lamb. It's fair to say that they come from different districts. They, her district is different than his district is is much dis- different from your district. Not every, you 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 wouldn't necessarily run in his win in his district as talented mm-hmm. as you are <laughs> with the uh, on on the platform that you Uh, Ran on, Uh, and that is true. That is part of being in a big, diverse country. Mm -hmm. Can you can can the can you cohere, make progress, find common ground uh, with, and still uh, recognize those differences? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, you know, I I absolutely think that we can. Um, You know, I think where the biggest issues happen. And I think this, this applies to politics in general, right? I think Democrats, we need to focus on turnout, not just high turnout in general, but turning out our base and our people. And um, you know, I've always believed that swing voters, there are multiple swing voters. There's Republican uh, to Democrat or Independent to Democrat swing voters, but there's also the swing voter that's the non-voter to the voter. And, um, and how we build those coalitions because, in order for the Democratic Party to win, we need both, and um, and there's very often a friction of making decisions of one over another. And one example of that, for example, is you know we have this conversation about fracking. Um, this is a difficult issue because yeah, it is for some people. It means jobs in their district to create pipelines that will poison families in my district and this is a very difficult issue because we aren't talking about you know abstractions here there are children in my community who have brain damage because of poisoned water and um And that's where these issues also clash, not just because the districts themselves are moderate, but um, but but because they point to very real different class and race issues in the country.
1: But how can we have these discussions and how can we have these discussions? Because sometimes it seems to me that uh, we we moralize about issues that are great moral issues, Mm -hmm. Uh, that one being one of them climate is one of them it's an existential issue but if you're someone who has makes their living extracting energy from the ground or building pipeline as you say that's an existential issue for them Absolutely. in terms of making a living how we have a conversation that includes those people and mm-hmm. says here is here is how we are going to see you through this transition here's yeah. how we because we understand your because that it seems to me is what's what's missing
0: yeah, and I, I actually think that it's the it's the path of success for the future of the Democratic Party. Uh, personally, you know, I believe that um, that if I think that our greatest chance at our party being successful, not just in terms of winning elections, but in actually changing people's lives, which is why we should be in this work, <laughs> which is why we are in this work, um, hopefully. Um, is in centering in, you know, frankly, an economically ambitious agenda. And my fear is that if our party gets stuck in 90s era and, you know, early 2000s era austerity politics, we are going to lose and we are going to lose to a more sophisticated Trump. And that is why I think this is so important. That's why I get so concerned when I hear, you know, people wringing their hands over student debt relief or doubling the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, or you know, fine if we can't get Medicare for all, dramatically lowering at uh, the the qualifying age or expanding Medicaid, um, because I think that the only way forward is to show that we can materially change people's lives.
1: But, you know, the problem is if you have a deep, a very divided Congress, now you're going to have a, what, a five or a six vote uh, majority in the House, uh, maybe not a majority at all in the Senate. You know, I think back, uh, Congresswoman, to um when we were passing the Affordable Care Act, and we desperately wanted a public option in there, mm-hmm. and we couldn't get it, and we couldn't get it, not just because of Republicans, but because of a few Democrats, and then we had a choice: do we move forward or not? Mm-hmm. And it, are we going to be materially better if twenty million people get health care who don't have it? If people with pre-existing conditions can get it? If you you know there are no lifetime limits on your insurance and so on? And um, I have never ever doubted. The wisdom of that decision as frustrated as we were mm-hmm. and that's kind of how progress is made in a divided country now democrats gave up 80 percent of the counties democrats dominated metropolitan areas democrats have to start breaking into that 80 percent of those mm-hmm. counties mm-hmm. uh so that they can forge a governing majority uh otherwise there can be great frustrations yeah you know for- well i think
0: the, the the question there is too is that you know and i think that um that was the wise decision if the votes weren't there for the public option and your choice is between to nuke the entire ACA and not let people be insured until they were 26 not you know continue to leave people with pre-existing conditions out in the cold to continue to allow being a woman to be a pre-existing yeah, condition exactly. oh. you know I, I of course you you make the decision that you make now here's where i think the trouble is, now, do you continue to say that the ACA is amazing for another 10 years? Or do, you, do we say you know, that we're honest with folks, not, oh, we need to trim around the edges? Because I, I can say, at least from my personal experience, what I actually got sick of as someone, as a waitress who actually needed to buy her insurance off, off the exchange um, was that I felt like I was being lied to by my own party with people saying all the time, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, it, it, it barely needs any improvement. Sure. Like some people are a little left behind, but you know we we'll, we can fix that. Um when, the truth of the matter is, is that in ex- in its execution, you know, I think we would be we would have been better off if we said these were the things that we're able to accomplish. But it's still broken.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the president at that time said this is a beginning. It's not the mm-hmm. end and it shouldn't mm-hmm. it shouldn't be the end." P- Nancy Pelosi, how is your relationship and uh, uh because she is focused on her entire caucus and Mm -hmm. maintaining a majority and so on. And I know that's been a source of frustration at times, but, uh, are you, I saw today somewhere you said you don't see a viable option. It sounded like you were prepared to vote for her. Are you prepared Mm -hmm. to vote for her?
0: Um, you know, I think I, I am, I am prepared to vote for as, as an option. Um, and I think what's important, though, is that we don't just, you know, give our votes away. I want to make sure that we're able to secure advances that um, either for the progressive movement or commitments um, to make sure whether it's a vote, whether it is, um, uh, you know, commitments on, on certain issues uh, early and often that, that the support that my constituents entrust with me uh, is, you know, is, is translated into material progress. Um, but that being said, you know, I think when people talk about the politics of the house and I'm sure you're well, well aware, um, this isn't just a personality contest.
1: Yeah, right. This is
0: an extremely, extremely difficult job, um, that requires, wrangling an entire caucus, um, some of which have members who, you know, are very conservative. We had a Democrat switch parties and actually become a Republican, um, this past year. And so, you know, the day before he registered as a Republican at, he was part of the democratic conference, you know, part of this big tent. And so you have to wrangle the internal, you have to make sure that you're able to, um, Exert enough organizing and influence to pe- make sure that people win elections and keep you know that majority. You have to have um, the 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 actual policy consensus, and so it's an extremely difficult job. Yeah, man, and, and
1: she and you you gotta concede that she's good at that.
0: Absolutely, and, and I think that's the thing. It's like the actual technical execution. It you know I think sometimes um, when folks look at. Um, when folks you know they 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 look at things from the outside you could if you could put anybody of any politics there right you could make the most you could make the most progressive person ever speaker of the house um it's it's still going to yield very difficult challenges because you're still managing a caucus with very conservative mm-hmm. members and mm-hmm. so you know i it 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 cuts both ways and for you know, the, the the reality is politics is a spectrum. And for people, um, just as there are people who, who believe that the speaker should be more progressive, there are also many members who exert a lot of pressure um, for a more conservative speaker, even within the Democratic Party.
1: And she heard she wants to maintain a majority, and that mm-hmm. makes a big difference to those priorities as well. Biden, are you happy with what you've seen so far? Are you encouraged discouraged
0: i think it kind of depends on the area i think we've been able to make a lot of progress on climate issues actually um and i i am uh encouraged in what we've been able to do there um but i also think that it it can be discouraging um for folks who want to see politics done differently um now i respect the fact that people didn't vote for that you know um a lot of this was this kind of return to normalcy and um, and that was the pitch. And I I frankly think that a lot of this was also about electability. Who can we go with that we think will beat Donald Trump and um, and Joe Biden delivered on that. And, um, and so, you know, that is a reality that we're dealing with, but I have just longer term concerns um, because I do believe that the forces that elected the, the social forces that are around that elected Donald Trump uh, are not going away. They have not gone gone away, and in fact, they're on a path to potentially being even more destructive. Um, our media environment is only more destabilized by um, by kind of the the lack of veracity and social media. Um, our our discourse and not just elected officials being siloed, but now American people being siloed in algorithms and Facebook, et cetera. Um, the role of money in politics and corruption has gotten worse. Hopefully we'll get better, but still. Um, and so I, I have real concerns, um, but I, you know, at the very least, we're, we at least have an opportunity to engage in good faith, which is just a completely different universe um, than the slide that we were on.
1: And finally, what about you? You know, your name comes up quite a bit uh, in New York State about the possibility of, of running for the Senate in 2022. I mean, is that something that you are considering? Would you rule it out?
0: You know, I think for me, I, I it's funny because when I first got to Washington, everyone said like, what do you want? And I would get this question all the time. Like, what do you want? And what they were asking was like, what are you after? Like, do you want this position or that? Po- like, what do you want? And <laughs> I felt it was, it felt so funny because I'm just kind of throwing up my hands. And I'm like, I want people to have health care. <laughs> and so, you know, when it comes to questions like, like yours, you know, I don't rule out anything because, um, because I want to make sure that people get healthcare and there's a world where I don't because the best thing for me to do in order to advance people's lives is for me to stay where I am. There's a world where the best thing that I do is leave. (laughs) I'm just like this toxic force that is sinking the democratic party. Um, you know, and there's, there's a world where, you know, I, I run for higher office, but you know, I think the fact of the matter is, is that we are just in, in an environment where we have to demand better um, of our government. Period. Republican Party, Democratic Party, and um, and I, the way I view these things, like deciding to run, whether it's for re-election in my position elsewhere or not, you know, what have you, I just see them as strategies or tools and that, you know, those decisions are informed by conditions. And so, you know, will I rule it out? No, because the conditions are I don't know what the conditions are, but am I, would I commit to that course of path? Is that something that I want for the sake of wanting? No, (laughs) no either. It's exhausting.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah, well, you'd be challenging the Senate Democratic leader, and that's a big deal, though you've taken on the big guys before. Listen, I so appreciate your time. Love the conversation. Hope we can have more. And I wish you luck in navigating this very complicated environment. And I wish you luck in making sure that people get the health care that they need. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's a worthy goal mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, far beyond any any office. So I, I appreciate that as well. Thank you so much.
0: Of course. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
1: Good to be with you.
0: Likewise. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.